the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Well, greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. We are at episode 356 and I'm your host, Paul Spain. Now, this week is a special episode. I am in New Delhi, India. Uh, I was in Singapore yesterday and uh, I've got a fair bit of travel ahead of me over the next uh, week or week or two as well. Uh, so last week I uh, managed to get some time with the CEO and founder of Process Street. And our regular listeners will have noticed recently that Process Street is our new sponsor. So just before we dive into the episode, one recommendation, if you are in front of your computer, um, then now would be the perfect time to be able to follow along this chat uh, with actually having a login to Process Street on your screen. So if you'd like to do that, uh, go to our affiliate link, nztechpodcast.com slash process street. Sign up through there. It is free for the base plan, so you can have a really good uh, look around. And of course, if at some stage in the future you decide to sign up, then you will get access to that 10% discount the Process Street are offering uh, to New Zealand Tech Podcast listeners uh, in addition to their sponsorship element back uh, to the podcast. So without further ado, let's jump straight in. Vinay Patanka, welcome along. Vinay, how are you today? Doing fantastic, Paul. Thank you for having me. Very excited. Well, great to great to finally have you on uh, on the show. Now, to get started, I'm keen to hear a little bit about your uh, background. I can uh, I can hear that Aussie twang in your voice, but I know that you're in uh, New York right now. So, um, tell us where you where you grew up and uh, what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm originally from Sydney. I grew up in the North Shore there. Stayed in Sydney till I was about 24. I worked in a number of jobs. I was a sysadmin, I worked as an accountant, and just before I left, I was working as a recruiter, recruiting software developers for the investment banks in Sydney. And then I kind of started my first business there. It was a small e-commerce store that led me to the US, um, sold that, started another company, and then a failed startup, and then eventually got to Process Street, uh, mostly while in the US, uh, kind of, I just felt the... Uh, the uh, economic and entrepreneurial environment there was a lot more supportive and there was just a lot more happening. You know, tons more conferences and, and investors and just just ideas and information and access that I, I didn't find in Australia. Um, and yeah, today I'm uh, the co-founder and CEO of Process Street, where a uh, on the simple side, we're a checklist app. On the complex side, we're a workflow automation tool. Um, but basically, we help companies execute their repeatable tasks and processes um, and make it easier and more visible and more automated and more accurate um, to help companies get their core tasks done. Yeah, well, I can I can certainly attest to that uh, with my firm having used uh, used Process Street now for uh, for over a year. Um, the big thing that I think really jumped out for us was just how easy it is to use as a tool and how quick it is to get up and up and running. So anyone can just jump in and start using it very quickly. So building a building a startup is uh, is no mean feat to build one that's uh, successful and and generating good revenues. How have you gone in terms of getting from uh, the early startup phase? Maybe you can tell us when that when that was when you first started uh, Process uh, Street or Process Street, as uh, as you say uh, in North America. Um, and what's that journey been like in terms of uh, raising capital and and the like? Yeah, I mean it's difficult to. Um, pinpoint kind of where you sit along the way I've seen companies that have kind of seem like on the, on, on the outside and pretty much have, you know, breezed along much faster than us and um, grown much bigger than us in a shorter time frame. And then at the same time, I've seen tons of companies that have just gone to zero in that same time frame. So it's, it's difficult to kind of see where we sit but I think in general if you're still alive as a startup <laughs> and you're not out of money then you're probably doing well um, 
it's definitely you know not easy um we started for the first year or so with just just two co-founders myself and cameron who's the cto um during that time it's almost like you know an impossible journey right like you're not actually building anything real everything's almost just like a test you are building a product and you have some users and whatnot but it's not there's no product market fit right you're not um you don't have something you can really sell properly and effectively. So really what you're doing is you're just kind of building that product to gather data to prove some type of opportunity to investors to raise. Well, at least that, that was the journey for us. Um, I know other companies have had different experiences, right? But the journey for us was that kind of first year was, wasn't really around building something that was necessarily um, anywhere close to what we really wanted the product to be. It was just building like, you know, the minimum viable product, the minimum thing that we could afford to build with the very limited resources that we had, right? Um, and so those days are really difficult because like building software is really hard when you only have one programmer, it's virtually impossible. Uh, so, you know, you have this kind of endless wish list and all, your, you know, every time anybody logs into the app, it's like, oh, there's these 34 things that are broken and that I need and that I can't use. Um, but it's quite exciting at the same time because you're kind of building something from nothing and you are getting, you know, people using it and getting feedback. Um, and then you kind of get into, well, we kind of got into this very gray area of like, and I think a lot of startups end up in this position where, you know, you have some traction, but getting the products to anything that's usable is going to take a long time and a lot of money. Um, and so for us, it was like, you know, we had a, eight year roadmap for one programmer, right? Like, and it still probably wouldn't get everything done. And, uh, and you know, you, as you, as you get more data and you get more feedback from users, that just keeps growing. Um, and you learn more about what you need to do and what people want and what the market wants. But you also realize that <clears throat> it's going to be incredibly hard to execute all those things without raising money. Um, and so we kind of got into that position and then we realized we had to raise money. So now it's about convincing the investors that you have enough traction um, or you have your ideas good enough, but you, know, you, you definitely are not, well, we didn't have anywhere near the numbers or the kind of traction to represent a real business, right? All we had was kind of qualitative feedback from a few hundred companies on, on the product and that they liked it and that, and that we saw like a clear path to um, you know, growing and building up the product. And so we basically had to take the vision of, okay, this is the little bit of data that we've collected and this is the little bit of code that we've written. Um, it's not a business or anything at the moment, but it's some type of, you know, it's the very bottom of a graph, right? <laughs> that maybe will grow like this one day. Um, and, then, and then take that and basically build a vision around like this is how we're going to get up here right this is what we're going to build this is how we're going to sell um and then you've just got to go and like sell that vision because when you go to raise money that first time for the seed round like i've like i've said i've seen a few companies that have that have defied this rule that have quite nice traction before they raise but most of the time like if you're building anything that's big and complicated it's quite difficult to do that without without resources and then so you know we went and we pitched that idea that was a couple of years ago um we raised the seed round and then you know still today we're only 20 percent of built what we pitched <laughs> in that in that deck um to raise the money and it's going to take multiple rounds of funding to just to complete like the product that we pitched in that initial one so, you know, building the products is very complicated and, and that's one problem. Raising the money and convincing people around that is another problem. And then, like, acquiring customers is, like, a big problem. Um, and then, you know, you've got to have your own strategies and techniques and teams around that. Uh, you know, we, have, we actually have more people in sales and marketing than we have in engineering to, to tackle that problem. Um, and then you've got to make them all work together in a short amount of time. And if any one of them doesn't work, then the business dies and so <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's hard work know, then it's, it's, a, it's a complex problem right um yeah. that you've that, you, that you've got to solve and you know my co-founder says it all the time it's like why are startups so hard right it's just like it's just like so many moving pieces at once um 
that you know you've got to you've got to you've got to track and manage. Um, but at the same time, I you know that's what I like about it as well. I found you know, I already said I worked as a sysadmin accountant and as a recruiter by the time I was like twenty four, and so I don't really like staying in the same kind of task or job for a long period of time. Um, especially once I feel like I've kind of 80%, 90% mastered it, then I just lose interest in it. Um, and so startups are really good because as the company grows, my job keeps changing every six or 12 months. And so I'm never really stuck doing the same stuff. Uh, so I like, I like that as well. That's cool. So there'll be uh, some people listening that are sort of somewhat curious about this phase you're in at the moment, and they'll wonder, well, should should we ever jump on board and start using software uh, that you know is is yet to kind of uh, have hit its stride in in terms of profitability uh, and in terms of uh, being something that can be absolutely sure is going to be around for uh, you know for for decades have you got any thoughts to share on that i mean the, the i guess the first example um i, I, mean, I what's I, a piece of software you've been using for decades uh, well yeah that's true i'm, I'm probably uh, stretching it out a bit there with uh, with the decades but um you know i guess an example that i i would tend to share would be uh zero which is you know it's very popular here in new zealand but they've only uh, just in the last few months got to a point uh, where they're actually a pro- yeah, prof- making a profit, uh, yeah, get cash flow uh, positive sure. as a as a business, but that's right? A, but that's as a choice. They could have been cash flow positive if they wanted to many years ago. That's true, and um, and they've certainly most, had most had lo- a lot of funding. Do that, yeah, right. Like at any point, I can cut my sales team, or any any SaaS company can cut their sales team, right? Uh, cut their marketing team down and be profitable. Um, they choose not to because they have competitors and they're focused on growth. I think that the thing, the bigger risk with SaaS companies once they hit a certain level is actually not the company shutting down. It's actually the company getting acquired and then the acquirer shutting down the product. So you think of like Dropbox and Hackpad or something, right? So it's not about... It's not about, yeah, the, big, the bigger risk is actually that, right? So once a, once a SaaS product reaches a certain size, then like you have recurring revenue. It's quite a stable business. And it just comes down to then the reason most SaaS companies are running in a, at a loss is not because they couldn't switch to profitability if they wanted to. It's just if they chose to do that, they would sacrifice growth. growth. Um, but yeah, like in that Hackpad Dropbox example, Dropbox wanted to build Dropbox paper, and that was the reason why they bought Hackpad and they took the team and they, and they took the technology and they made them build paper. And, that, and, you know, Hackpad was already a very valuable product in and of itself, but paper for Dropbox is going to be 10 times more valuable than Hackpad on its own because Dropbox has a built-in um, user base of 100 million users or whatever it has, right? And so it's basically able to just get more distribution on its product paper than Hackpad would ever be able to get using its own in-house marketing team with a few people or whatever it has, right? Um, and so, yeah, th- that's usually the bigger risk. But in those cases, when your company gets acquired and you, and you transition out to a different product uh, or you, you trans- transition the technology and integrate it into the company that buys you, um, because the company doesn't actually technically shut down, right? There's still a bunch of money and there's people working there and they have resources. They you create a very nice transition program um, that basically gives everybody, you know, one-click options to migrate all their data or get all their data out and move to the new platform. And so most of the time, there isn't really a big loss in actual productivity for the company or the users of those products um, because, the, you know, the, the company respects their early customers and they have the resources to be able to build out those migration um, paths and uh, export paths and so it's usually not a big big problem I think anyway okay so you're pretty uh, you're pretty confident in your future then put it that way <laughs> it's fair to say from yeah, your, like your I said, perspective like once you get to that certain that yeah. certain level of of customer base like we have over a thousand customers and um, you have kind of stable recurring revenue then 
like you're not going anywhere. Um, it's just a matter of, of how fast and how big you want to grow and um, and hence why you've got so much invested in a in a um, in your sales resource that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good stuff. Well, um, let's dive in and and, and talk about uh, Process Street. So, you mentioned that you pitched a whole lot of capabilities to your investors, and yeah, you know, you're only uh, partway partway through that journey. Um, from the from the time I've spent with uh, Process street uh it's certainly been changing over over that period and i guess we've, we probably first encountered it in uh, uh 2015 and really jumped in uh boots and all uh in 2016 and now it's uh, you know it's just an absolute key part of of what our business um you know needs to utilize every every single day um talk us how would you how would you explain process street um that's that's a good question. I mean, for me, I talk about it as being the the place where we uh, where we capture uh, the things that we need to be able to do on an ongoing basis within the business. And sometimes those are things that you've had captured in the past, and in varying other forms, checklists, and so on that have been there. Uh, sometimes it's uh, it's new things and. I guess for for us, one of the things that uh, that my services manager Greg has been helping with over the last year is trying to reduce the business's uh, reliance on a on a key uh, area, which is the availability of my time. So there've been lots right. of processes in the past where. A, a lot of uh, interaction with me is required on certain types of things. Now, what he's trying to do is to uh, move those into a context where the thinking that I do is actually documented out in Process Street so that uh, the reliance on me is lessened up. And that allows yeah, me to, yeah, to, to not be the bottleneck. Uh, I can focus on strategy. I can be... Uh, you know, at international events and you know away from the office for for bigger stretches of time uh, with with the result net result from from me doing those things being positive on the business because I'm working strategically rather than being pulled in operationally um, so that's a key the other as we scale our business is making sure that we we get the consistency that we have as a smaller business at um, at, at, at size. So, um, for instance, you know, we, we're uh, looking on at, at new, uh, new branches, new locations as something that we'll experiment with. To do that and to have people in other locations operate as consistently as what we do at HQ, we're not going to be able to use the same methods that we were using five years ago. So anyway, I've got a bit off track there, but those, those are some of the reasons that we uh, that we use Process Street. But you talked about checklists uh, uh, yeah, early on in the in our chat, and uh, I mean it's the quickest and easiest way to build uh, checklists that you can repeat, and and that's a huge thing for us because we have to have absolute consistency in the sort of work uh, that we do, and. Yeah, I think that that's probably normal across any sort of business you can think of. And when I get somebody that sort of pushes back and says, but Paul, I know how to do this stuff. I don't want to follow a checklist. Uh, that's when I tend to, you know, point them back and say, look, you know, even uh, even the smartest amongst us, the brain surgeons of the, of the world have to follow a checklist. So if it's good enough for them, then uh, I think the rest of us can uh, can do it on uh, on key things. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting ways that um you come about the need to to create a process. Um what we what I tend to do in my teams, um sometimes it'll be obvious, okay, this is gonna be a you know, really important process, or sometimes I'll wanna use automation as part of the process. So I will build, for example, we just did one recently that was like a sales uh, proposal process that basically automatically generates a proposal and sends it out via a contract for the client to sign. Um, it calculates their plan and the different price points and generates that and calculates the expiration dates, automatically updates the CRM the proposal sent with like the link. It creates follow-up tasks for the, um, for the reps to follow up when the proposal is expiring and automatically emails the client when it's expiring and some stuff like that. 
And so, you know, I knew that was going to be a complex process that I had to build a process for. Um, but a lot of the time, the way that we decide to build a process is when a mistake is made. So, it, you know, some common ones were like... Yeah, it's a, pre- it's a pretty good trigger, actually. Uh, I think yeah. most, most businesses and organizations, um, yeah, hit those points when they see a mistake and they immediately stop and, and are working out, well, how do we avoid that in future, whether Next that's time. a post-incident yeah. or post-implementation review or whether it's just, you know, some little thing that's cropped up that uh, you want to make sure it gets back into your learning so it doesn't, uh, doesn't occur again. Yeah, exactly. So that's a, a lot of the time a trigger for us for for building a process because it doesn't. Sometimes you can um, over you know over systemize or, or or kind of over optimize a process to a point where it becomes less productive. Um, so we don't recommend putting every single thing down, especially not at the beginning, especially for small businesses that don't have dedicated resources to map and maintain all the processes in the business because you can kind of just start off and say, okay, look, you know, we need to get our processes under control, you know, especially if you're a small business, 20 people or something. And then one of these mistakes happen or, you know, you lose a big customer or something. And then suddenly you're like, oh shit, we need to get our processes under control. And then you suddenly set this big project to like map all the processes in the company and document everything and then track everything. And, and, you don't realize, but that's going to add 20% to everybody's workload. Plus, you're going to need a solid you know, few hundred hours or whatever of extra time just to even set all that up in the first place. Good point, yeah. And so trying to do everything at once is generally a recipe for failure unless you actually have dedicated resources for that project. So if you're willing to pay for a consultant or if you're an enterprise and you can actually, um, you know, pull someone from a project pool or get dedicated team or, or person to basically manage that. Um, a lot of the time we recommend just, you know, either starting on a process that's really close to the money and that's highly valuable or kind of doing it in a way where, okay, if a mistake gets made, we've got a process around it. It's, it's kind of like how you do unit testing in building a product. So you can't, you can't build a app with, you know, a hundred percent unit testing coverage because you would have to build a feature and that would take you a week, but then you would have to spend six weeks building all the unit tests for every possible use case around that feature just to make sure it never breaks. And no one has 100% coverage on their product. Like someone like Google or Facebook might have 80, 90% test coverage um, and they have giant teams just building tests, right? Uh, someone, but the way that most startups do it in like the lean kind of startup methodology is when, when a bug comes up, when a problem happens, then you build a test for it and you fix that one problem and you keep going. But you don't like forecast, oh, I, I can forecast there's these potential 56 problems, so let's like build tests for all of them before any of them actually happen because it kind of paralyzes you, right? You can't actually make progress on the core product if you spend all your time um, trying to account for things that may or may not come up, Right. So it's the same kind of idea where when things break or when you see the problems arise, then you jump in and build the process instead of kind of trying to predict them all ahead of time and then creating this massive workload project for you um, that kind of paralyzes you from the beginning and then you never get started, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's good. So um, who are the sort of customers that you are bringing, bringing on? You talked about about a thousand customers at the moment. Who are the types of organizations that seem to be uh, you know most interested? Yeah, um, we're quite a horizontal product that people can use in lots of different ways. So we have a very broad customer base. A pretty common thread is um, services companies or teams inside bigger companies that are providing some type of service to an internal or external customer. Basically people that companies that are delivering a repeatable service or teams that are running a repeatable service internally. So I'll give you some examples. So anything in kind of professional services, so IT companies, managed service providers are great examples. Um, accountants, law firms, marketing agencies, software companies, anybody that deliver a service over and over again that's quite high value as a service. Um, 
So those, and then kind of internal teams that deliver these internal services either to customers externally or internally. So sales teams, support teams, customer success teams, HR teams, IT teams, finance teams, people that kind of have these repeatable um, processes that they need to deliver over and over again. And then generally, just also because where we're at with the product, we don't have a mobile app yet. We're generally seeing better traction from people that sit at their desk all day versus people that are on a phone all day. And I think that's just because we don't have that mobile um, mobile app out yet. That said, your um, process street seems to work pretty well from a mobile device, and uh, you know I know our guys uh, will will use um, yeah use it on their mobiles yeah. and yeah, it's fully uh, responsive, it w- and you can use well. it perfectly from a phone. Um, it's just not as elegant of an experience as having it on an app. So obviously that's on your roadmap. Is that a long way, yeah, long way off for no, you? We're gonna we're gonna be working on that next year. Okay, good, good. And um, so for those types of firms, what what would be the most common thing that you hear back uh, from organisations around the way that they're uh, that they're using Process Street for? I mean, I guess we've got a a lot of people listening that maybe sit within. IT teams and in, in, in some uh, place. Uh, being a tech podcast, there's a, there's a lot of uh, tech oriented people. So maybe some examples uh, there in terms of how you uh, how you see uh, Process Street being uh, being utilised, and then maybe some uh, some some more general ones. Yeah, yeah. So um, client onboarding or customer setup customer implementation um, is a very is, is our number one um, most common use case depending on the type of team and type of business it can vary a little bit but in IT teams for example it would be um, either bringing on a new client if you're a managed service provider and, and basically going through all the requirements gathering and figuring out exactly how their setup is and collecting all the information off them and collecting their passwords and their configs and all that <clears throat> and then also would then be every time, say, an employee came in or left from one of those clients, or if you're an internal IT team, it'd be every time a new employee joined or left the company, um, you'd be going through and setting up their computer and, and uh, configuring all their accounts and passwords and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, so kind of client or customer onboarding, even employee onboarding in those cases. Um, for different types of companies, then there's all sorts of different client onboarding. So we have a lot of uh, other SaaS companies that are basically enterprise. They, ha- they sell enterprise or quite complicated software where from the time somebody buys to the time they actually are set up on the product could require custom integrations or complicated setups or database setups or if it's a developer tool integrations with their platforms. Um, they can take weeks or months to kind of finish that setup process. So tracking that across the different teams, across sales, across the implementation team across the port, across account management, um, giving management visibility across all those implementations. That's a really common use case. And then you can keep taking that across different industries. So, um, you know, accountants bringing on new customers for setting them up for end of tax or getting all their paperwork organized. Um, Lawyers bringing on new customers. Software agencies bringing on new customers for building websites or custom apps. Um, Those are really common use cases. Um, we get a lot of kind of general back office use cases. So HR bringing on new customers, running payroll every month, um, any kind of reporting, uh, processing expenses, leave applications. Those are all quite common ones that are general. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it, one one that yeah we certainly use uh, Process Street as part of our hiring our hiring yeah um, that's a big one yeah, yeah process so you know there we've got you know lots of little steps and we want to make sure that we're really consistent in that hiring process and so from from just you know collecting the basic information about who is this person what's their email address their phone number and you know all of those bits and pieces uh, as as we get resumes and, and and CVs coming in and we uh, we shortlist people then they go you know they go into uh, into process street 
and we just start collecting that information. We're sitting in Process Street when we're doing the interviews and actually filling in, uh, you know, a whole yep. bunch of fields of information, making sure we don't uh, forget to collect, uh, you know, key uh, key things and ask certain questions or, or types of questions that we want to, um, you know, include within the the realm. I mean, it doesn't stop you. Um, you know, being free flowing and asking asking other things that are out, outside um, of the formal process, but there are some things we want to make sure that we've ticked certain boxes and that we've uh, yep. uh, we've done. And uh, yeah, certainly it, it's it's been really good from a consistency point of view there because we work out as a business how we want to do those things, and then uh, yeah, it becomes uh, yeah very very repeatable. Uh, even if the person that's developed the process isn't uh, around on that on that given day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have like a three-step recruitment process. So we have one checklist that's for the candidate to fill out. Um, it basically involves them, has a bunch of form fields for them to fill out uh, their name, their attached their resume, links to their GitHub profile and whatnot. This is for uh, an engineer interview. Um, then it actually has like a test for them to do as part of the initial checklist. So they've got to come in, complete all the information, fill out this test and submit it to us. And that's kind of all part of that checklist. Um, if they complete the test, that triggers another checklist. The first step of that is like for um, Cameron to review the test. If they pass the test, that triggers the interview process. Um, so if he approves the test, that moves on. And we kind of have like interview one, interview two, interview three, and they're assigned to um, you know, me to Cameron to our chief architect to go through and, and do the three interviews. We all collect notes and those notes get aggregated at the bottom and we can see the notes from all the three people. Each interviewer has like a pass or fail step. So if they fail, the candidate gets rejected. And then if the candidate is offered, it triggers like the onboarding checklist for them to kind of come in. We have like a before, your st- before you start checklist for for new employees to work on before their first day and then we have from your first day moving forward and so we kind of have that entire thing mapped out that way yeah that's really good and uh, certainly uh that that onboarding part is is really important i think in a, in a business to make sure that uh, you know key things are shared and i love that you can just pull videos in so you know we've been recording yep. uh you know a bunch of videos here uh within our studio and then in, in the office uh, so that we get a whole bunch of information across that sometimes what we found in the past was someone would come on board, I'm away, I don't get to sit down uh, with them for an hour and uh, you know share a lot of vision and other things that I, I like to be able to talk about and there might be other little bits and pieces that could uh, could sometimes sort of you know, drop off but it becomes um, you know, becomes clearer if we've if we've missed stuff when when we're following a process street but also the videos can uh, can go right in there when did you incorporate video into process street was that something at the beginning or it was one of those things on the on the list that you moved into uh, quite quickly because you actually hosted in inside process street now right so you all that content that's uh, I guess company intellectual property is uh, is pretty secure in there yeah video was something that we did from the beginning um the way the product evolved was it was first just a basic checklist app that had content so you could basically create a checklist that was a set of things to do and each side inside each step of that checklist you could add instructions on how to actually complete that task so those instruct the, the first things we added were text images and videos as like the first content that you could include. What we didn't have, and this was part of the, the pitch to investors, was we didn't have any way to collect data um, as you're going through checklists, and then we didn't have any way to automate um, anything that was happening throughout that process. So it was a very kind of, you know, if you had a paper checklist um, and it had some instructions on it and a list of checkboxes, we just, the initial product was just making that nicer digitally. But the, the real kind of next step of that was taking it from you know, a checklist tool, which you might call it, to a workflow automation platform. Um, and so there's, there's kind of a few big jumps in there that happen. Um, so one is being able to collect 
data. So that was one of the first things we did was around building the ability to put in form fields into each task in a checklist. So now if the task says, um, you know, onboard an employee uh, or the, you know, set up a, a username or set up a new employee with a new Active Directory username and password or something, now you can actually input, say, their Active Directory username or their email address into Process Treat. So A, there's a record of like what uh, was was inputted and what their name or their, their username was created as. But then B, you can then reuse that data in automations to send it off into other systems, push it into an email address, automatically send an email to that address, or kind of use it in any other way you want, right? Um, so yeah, the first step was kind of collecting data. Um, and now the, the next big thing that we're working on is um, creating a lot more automation functionality. So you can now kind of input data as you're going through steps. Um, and we've built out some automation through um, our Zapier integration and, and a, few other, a few other bits and pieces. Um, the next big things we're working on is what we're calling the kind of workflow feature set. And that actually is going to allow you to make um, varying checklists. So checklists that change based on things that happened before. Right, so they're quite, um, quite dynamic according to a scenario. So maybe onboarding a salesperson is going to be different to onboarding a technical person, for instance. And then you have exactly. different, different steps in that process, yeah? Yeah, so it gets, it gets very um, like open and powerful once this all comes in. But um, a few of the features are going to be so stop tasks, which basically allow you to decide if you want a checklist to be done in order or out of order. Um, and then it also lets you decide if you want tasks to be done in parallel or out of parallel, uh, so, so in order or in parallel. Um, and then you can control assignments between different tasks. So you, and, then, like, and then you can essentially tasks that are beyond stop tasks are disabled. So it's, it's a little feature, but it does a lot of things. So firstly, yeah, it lets you control the enforcement of a checklist if you want. Or it lets you say, first, these three tasks have to be done. Then these three tasks have to be done by three different teams, but out of order. But only once those three teams have all finished their three tasks can we move on to the next thing. So it lets you kind of create these branches or, 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 or flows that, that a few tasks get done in order, they break out, maybe through different people or different teams, and then it comes back and it joins again. So an example of this would be like, Say you're a software company and you build websites. Um, a client comes in and says, I need um, a new logo, a new website, and a mobile app, right? As kind of like three parts of their new web presence project or whatever. Um, and so you have three different teams that take care of that. You have the design team for the logo, the web team, and the mobile team. And, and so... The client would come in, you'd gather this information, you'd select mobile app, uh, web app, and logo. This would be using um, conditional. And then the kind of those tasks would come out and they would be assigned to the correct team. So the logo team would get the, the design team would get the logo task, etc. But the stop task will come after that that says present, say, first drafts to client. And so what will happen is all three of those teams will then get notified based on the initial project meeting they would all have to then submit their first drafts before the workflow could move on to the first, like present drafts to client first meeting, right? So you can split things out that way and stop the process at different points. Right, and you could do something similar around getting approvals and sign-offs and budget or whatever other steps you wanted in the, in the way. You know, yeah. CEO has to sign off for X, Y, Z before you can you know, continue. Yep. Conditional will basically what we're calling conditional logic will allow you to show and hide different tasks based on decisions that were made before. So in that example, if I selected the web design and the logo, those tasks or groups of tasks would appear and automatically be assigned to the correct teams. Um, that lets you create kind of varying checklists that way. Um, variable assignments allow you to assign tasks to different people based on decisions that were made before. So for example, if you're onboarding a new employee um, and you say, okay, this is, and you choose who's the employee that you're onboarding and you put in their email or you choose from a drop down their name, 
it would automatically assign a set of tasks to that new employee, right? That has just been onboarded. Um, and then variable due dates are things like if you have a conference and you have a process that's like um, trade show setup process, a trade show uh, preparation process, which is a pretty common one. Um, you would run the process and you'd input the trade show date. You say, okay, the trade show is in February 2018. And it would kind of backwards create due dates. Um, so these tasks need to be done one week before the event. These tasks need to be done one month before the event. These tasks need to be done three months before the event. So it's creating relative due dates to the event date that you selected. And, and then the, the fifth workflow feature would be an approval task. So basically the ability to create looping approvals. So as it gets rejected, it keeps going into a loop until it gets approved and then it moves on. If you put all those things together, you can essentially do any type of process um, that you can, say, design with like a BPMN uh, flow diagram. And we're never going to, well, at this point, we don't want to put in any type of flow diagram um, component into the product because the product was really designed for people that don't understand or don't want to deal with um, flow diagrams. It's just like if you're trying to do a process and you've never heard of a flow diagram or a UML chart or BPMN, but you have this thing that you're trying to do over and over again every day in your business, uh, you know, we tried to design the product so that you could figure out how to do it. And yeah, but once that kind of feature set is out, it will allow you to create really, really complex workflows um, or even simple ones, but that work well, right? Uh, in a, in a, in a non-flow diagram in a very kind of easy, easy to set up way. That's great. That's cool. So where to from here? I mean, it sounds like you've got, you know, from, well, from from my experience, you've got a really good feature set that works well. You've got uh, these new things uh, that are that are coming that are in your roadmap. How long does it take you to uh, develop new things? And do you ever get a customer who comes on board and is you know disappointed that you don't have enough sort of features yet and uh, you know, are you losing a lot of customers? How does that uh, how does that work? Because people always come and and try uh, try products out. Are you getting a pretty good um, you know rate of customers sort of staying with you once they sign up and start paying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, our our churn is is good. It's at the kind of benchmark levels of most most SaaS companies out there. So it's not a it's not a problem for us. Um, yeah, I think that. We do get people that don't sign up because we don't have the feature sets that they want, especially some of these larger customers that we're now going after that are looking to do more complicated workflows that they're used to doing or maybe have had like an on-premise kind of legacy tool that they were doing and they're trying to migrate over. So a few of those kind of really complex workflows we're not able to handle yet. And that's what we're building towards is our number one priority is basically being able to handle every kind of workflow. Um, and then, and then what we've kind of identified is the, um, the two most valuable areas for our customers in terms of the product is, uh, so is one is automation and two is optimization. And so um, the, the real value of Process Street is not having a manual tool that is kind of the same amount of work to do as filling out a checklist manually. Uh, a paper checklist. Um, while it is nicer to have a digital checklist over a paper checklist, for and a you lot can of reasons, report on it and so on too, right? You can report on it. You can track on it. You can view it from everywhere. Uh, you know, it doesn't burn in a fire. Um, if a change is made, you can track the audit log. Blah blah blah. But that's still only a marginal improvement. Maybe I, you know, if you spend twenty hours a week on checklists, filling them out in paper, and you lose some, maybe I can improve your experience by ten or twenty percent by moving them online at 50%. But if I can automate a number of the, a number of the tasks in that, that you have to do manually, um, I can improve your experience significantly. If you're, if you're finding that there's mistakes happening in that process that we can eliminate completely by automating. So for example, it'd be like, you know, you have a new employee that comes in, you have to print off a checklist, you type it out, 
then that has to get given to somebody else. Then they have to retype that information into another system, right? So that kind of entire thing, nothing gets tracked. There's no visibility as to like what, you know, what stage is that checklist at right now because it's a piece of paper in someone's hand. There's no audit, audit trail on it. Um, and then there's like this delay of time when that gets handed off to somebody else to get re-inputted. And then there's the, the accuracy problems where they type their name wrong or they type you know, one digit wrong in their birthday or whatever, right? And so we can kind of eliminate all that, which is a lot more value than just the actual checklist. And so automations are the next big thing um, after we kind of finish this workflow um, piece and basically enable every type of workflow. And that's just going to be um, integrating with more things, um, making it easier, things like Active Directory, um, so you can kind of manage your users automatically and automate that part, um, plugging in directly to a number of other products so you can automate those integrations. Um, and we're going to do a huge Zapier update, and API release, and a lot of these things that basically just continue to enable automation processes instead of just kind of moving the physical to digital. Um, and then, and then, and then, so that's one big piece that we find is really valuable to customers that is once those automations are set up, you know, computers can do a lot of tasks better, obviously. Um, and then the other big piece is then optimization. So if we can remove a few hours of your time each week or each month through automation, that's amazing. And that's a lot of value. Um, but if we can then teach you how to improve your process slightly in some way, so you get ongoing consistent increase in output through optimization, um, then that can result in tens or of millions of dollars of return to a, to a company of a decent size, right? So if we can, you know, increase your customer retention rate by 5% or increase your deal closing by 3% or we can reduce your, your factory machine downtime by 5%. Um, and that's an ongoing benefit that your company receives forever on every deal they close or as the sales team grows. Then that's kind of like a, the, the, the real or another huge value piece. And so the way that, we're, the way that we can do that is by offering insights and reports and analytics into your processes and how they're performing and suggest ways that we can improve them. Um, and, and that's, so that's kind of the next big, the next big milestone. Um, but that being said, those are, those are the two big value pieces, but those value pieces don't work if the core product is not a good experience. So if you're not able to input data effectively, for example, we don't have a mobile app, it makes it harder for people to complete workflows for you to get the data that you need to be able to optimize the process. Um, so we also need to just continue working on our core um, product and user experience as well, just to continually improve that to make it easier for companies to actually collect the data, get their employees onto the product, make it easier for the, for the teams to adopt um, so that's the other big focus for us as well, is just really to improve, continually improve the user experience and the ways that you can access um, and, and, and interact with the product. Good stuff. Well, there's, um, there's lots to look forward to, look forward to with, uh, with Process Street uh, by the sounds of it. And, yeah, you know, I, think it, I think it's fair to say for, uh, for, for my team at, at Gorilla, uh, we, you know, we're starting to um, notice the benefits in, I guess, in new areas as, as time goes on. We're certainly, as you talked about earlier on, uh, are looking out for when uh, there's a issue or a mistake, uh, something that happens that is, is unexpected and looking, well, where can, uh, where can Process Street sort of come into the mix to uh, minimise the chance of that happening again? Uh, and in, and in terms of improving customer satisfaction, I think it's you know it's quite a key there uh, yeah. to to just you know pushing up the consistency. And yeah, we're very much a, a services business, so you know we don't we don't have a product for you know for people to to love. It comes down to the service that we deliver every right. day. So being incredibly consistent with that uh, is something we're always focused on. How can how can we just uh, you know ensure that the the chance of a customer not smiling after we've uh, uh, we've carried out some work is uh, is really minimal and you know always looking to uh, to improve that so uh, oh that's great to uh, 
to get a little bit of a taste of um, of you know where where things will further head and and what those uh, those business benefits are going to be. Um, well, I think that's uh, that's just about it for uh, for this episode. Now, if people want to get on board with Process Street, um, we'll share uh, the the link. In fact, it's New Zealand Tech Podcast dot com slash Process Street S T R E E T and when they follow that link, they will be able to try Process Street for free forever, right? There's a base plan uh, that people can use. If they just want to use it a little bit, then there's a, a level of usage for as many users, or is it as many users as they like? Is it? Yep. It's pretty as flexible, many users right? As you want, yep. and you can have up to five processes and five active checklists. Um, so it's pretty good if you're a, a small team, a few people uh, running a few processes, or a large team that runs kind of some infrequent processes. Uh, then we have, yeah, business plans that we charge per user per month um, on top of that. Yep, and if they follow through that uh, that link, then they'll get a, a 10% discount off on the on the on ongoing. So thank you for uh, for offering that to our listeners. Is there anything else that uh, that you want to add that we've uh, we've missed along the way? Oh, I should mention we will also be sharing with those that uh, that sign up through uh, the New Zealand Tech Podcast uh, link. We are working on some templates that will be available um, exclusively to those that have signed up this way. Uh, some of the processes that uh, that we've uh, built over uh, over the last uh, year or so. So some of those things um, we'll be working to uh, to put into a, a sort of a shareable uh, form. So just uh, something else we thought might might be useful uh, for uh, for our listeners. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and we have hundreds of example templates for all the different types of processes that I mentioned in this show and many, many more uh, that you can check out for free just by signing up for the free free version of Process Street. That's great. Excellent. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining the show, uh, Vinay. And uh, look, we'll keep in touch and we'll certainly be keen to get, to get an update maybe sometime uh, into next year on how you're going with uh, with some of those new uh, new capabilities. Yeah, yeah. I, I know there's one or two that we're looking for. Azure Active Directory uh, integration is one there that's uh, that's on, on the list that uh, will just uh, make things uh, a little bit a uh, little bit easier oh, just one more thing I wanted to ask if people want to get data out of process street how do you do that is there a way to sort of print it export it what are the what are the options if you want to you know have a copy of the data in in some form in another world that's not process street yeah sure um, so yeah you can print and or, or export to PDF your templates and your checklists uh, and then you can also export all your data that's being inputted to a CSV um, so we have quite a few op- export options there uh, and we'll be, we'll be building more in the future as well. Excellent, oh that's great, well thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it Paul. Okay, cheers. Thanks for having me The New Zealand Tech Podcast brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT